You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Gilmore here. As you know, it's been several weeks since the last episode of The Seed of the Woman. I said back in July that I had some health issues to care for, and without going into a lot of detail, I'll just say it wasn't COVID, at least not in the beginning. It was a form of thyroid cancer, and it required me to take time off for two neck surgeries and to regain my strength. But just as I was about to restart everything, my wife and I did get hit by COVID. And as miserable as we've been over the past three weeks or so, we both are doing much better. And we praise the Lord for the healing he's given in relation to both cancer and COVID. So now it's time to return to telling the story of the seed of the woman, the greatest story ever, while exposing Satan's counter story and the mystery of 666. Now, if you followed the podcast from the beginning, you know that the Bible lays out both of these stories. And you also know how important it is for everyone to be familiar with both. One of the reasons why is because both stories, the story of the seed of the woman and Satan's counter story of the seed of the serpent, both stories offer the same reward for people on their side. Both offer a solution to the struggle of living in a broken world, a world under constant threat from death and corruption of all kinds. The solution at the center of the story of the seed of the woman is the restoration of all things through the seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Keep in mind, this is a restoration that returns the earth and the human condition to something very similar, but actually better than it was originally prior to the rebellion and fall. And there's so much in the scripture that details the goodness of the original and the return of that goodness and more in the restoration that comes through Jesus and only through him. Meanwhile, Satan offers a very different solution. On one hand, I should describe it as the same solution because Satan's counter story does hold out the possibility of utopian conditions tied to embracing him and the seed of the serpent rather than the seed of the woman, who, as I say, is Jesus. Two episodes ago, I devoted the entire time to showcasing the utopian agenda of world leaders in organizations such as the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, and the Council on Inclusive Capitalism. These are not the only organizations dedicated to bringing to the world a Jesusless utopia, but they're among the most open and not trying in any way to hide what they're after. And, as it just so happens, they represent the political, economic, and religious components of the end-time system that will rise one day under Satan's control and the control of the beast out of the sea. So it's important to understand that we're talking about Satan offering the world a utopia, but one that's disconnected from the good that comes from God and through the seed of the woman. In one sense, Satan's strategy hasn't really changed much since he first tempted Adam and Eve. He convinced Adam and Eve that he was offering something better than the very good that God wove into all that he made and into every aspect of life as he organized it. Their lives would be better without God, Satan suggested. 
and without any of his restrictions on their lives and relationships and interactions with the world, including the unseen spirit world. Fast forward to now and to Satan's ongoing effort to make his counter story prevail over the story of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Satan's effort includes his deceiving people into believing that God's values and the beliefs and practices associated with God's values, that they are what's standing in the way of something better. And what's interesting to me is that the alternatives offered by Satan in the end are tied to beliefs, values, and practices associated with the good that God supplied at the beginning. Take, for example, God's design for marriage and family. Genesis 2 not only spells out exactly what that is, it also reveals the benevolent, very good purpose behind God's design. In the first marriage, God created the perfect partnership and platform for life under his blessing, the perfect partnership and platform for obeying him and doing his will, and for living out the blessing of relationships with him and others and with self and the rest of creation. And so Satan was determined to separate Adam and Eve from God and his goodness. And he did it by convincing them they were missing out on something far better, something they could control if they were willing to take the initiative away from God and determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. Now, Satan's immediate focus, of course, was God's prohibition against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But once Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, he focused on separating Adam and Eve from the blessings of other provisions of God's design for life in this world, including the provision of marriage and family relationships. So it's no wonder that one of the chief values of the end-time system of the seed of the serpent extends from the proposition that release from God's design for sexuality and marriage will lead to a life that's better than what God had in mind. It's as though Satan is hissing now the same as he did to Adam and Eve. You will not surely die, for God knows when you break free from his design for marriage and the family, your eyes will be opened and you will be able to determine your own way forward. Now, I, I could craft similar explanations for virtually every belief value, and practice central to the world's pursuit of its utopia. If I were to chart it on paper, I would list in a single column the fundamental moral obligations of God's original design for life in this world and for our relationships with each other, joined with those additional moral obligations that arose after the flood. The list would include be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, Genesis 1, 28, and also Genesis 9 and verse 7. And then subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it and over every living thing. Genesis 1.28 Eat from plants. Genesis 1.28 and 29 Use God's design for marriage and family to organize relationships. That's Genesis 2.18-25 Join together with others to do God's will. Again, Genesis 2.18-25 Worship through animal sacrifice, Genesis 4, 4, and also chapter 8 in verses 20 through 21. Eat fish and animal flesh for food, only don't eat any blood. That's Genesis 9, verses 2 through 4. Hold people and animals accountable for human life as bearers of God's image, Genesis chapter 9, in verses 5 through 6. Trust God to preserve the earth. 
in fulfillment of his plan to restore all things through the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 8, verses 21 through 22, and Genesis 9, verses 12 through 17. By the way, I'll put these on a PDF and make them available to you in the show notes for this episode. But in regard to each of these, not just with respect to God's design for marriage, but in regard to each, we see Satan's influence stirring up beliefs, values, and practices that represent the exact opposite of God's mandates. So for example, with regard to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, we see violence and murder and human sacrifice and child sacrifice. With respect to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it and over every living thing, we see Satan introducing the worship of the creature rather than the creator and worship of the earth itself along with the sun. We're going to talk a lot more about the worship of the sun in future episodes. And then with regard to God's design for marriage and family to organize relationships, we see polygamy. We see the abuse of women. We see all kinds of sexual deviation. And with respect to joining together with others to do God's will, we see people joining together to do their own thing. With respect to worship through animal sacrifice, we see all kinds of other cultic practices that come on the scene, including human sacrifice and child sacrifice, as I mentioned before. And in reference to eating fish and animal flesh for food and no blood, we see just the opposite, eating and drinking blood or disallowing the eating of fish and animal flesh is symbolic of a return to Eden of human making. And then holding people and animals accountable for human life is bearing God's image. Again, we see violence, we see murder, we see human sacrifice, we see child sacrifice. And finally, with regard to trusting God to preserve the earth in fulfillment of his plan to restore all things through the seed of the woman, well, we see people determined to make their own way, as we've been talking about with respect to the Tower of Babel, to make a Shem of their own. So throughout Satan's counter story, Satan forms his offer of a utopia using beliefs, values, and practices that are moral opposites of the earliest mandates that God gave to preserve human life and the earth itself for the restoration that he promised. And even now, as we approach the end of the age, we see the world coming together around these and other counter-values, counter-beliefs, and counter-practices. And so there's abortion, transgenderism, homosexual marriage, evolution, population control, climate change, religious pluralism, humanism, and socialism. As though Satan has never stopped arguing did God actually say you have to follow his design for marriage and the family? Did God actually say you have to respect and protect all human life, even babies in the womb? And on and on it goes. It's what Satan did back in the day, and it's all part of the powerful deception that he and his ilk will use to align people with their counter story, not only when the seed of the serpent ultimately rises to power, but also in the buildup to that time. And that's one of the premier reasons why I'm doing this podcast. I believe the deception that's coming has already begun. And ignorance, both of Jesus' story and of the counter story, is feeding into that deception. To be blunt, there are just too many well-meaning believers in Jesus who mistakenly think the deception doesn't apply to them. After all, they say, 
The deception and things like 666 doesn't take center stage until the beginning of the last half of the tribulation, the final 1260 days when the beast is fully revealed. Since we believe the church will be gone by then anyway because of the rapture, why should we bother? But the problem is, the story of the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13 is not the beginning of 666 and of its associated beliefs, values, and practices. It's the end of the story, the part of the story holding the symbolism of 666 in reserve until the time is right for inserting it, pulling everything together like a keystone that completes an arch. The beginning of 666 can actually be found back in Genesis. And moving forward from there into the time of Jesus' first coming and up to this very day, the counter story of 666 has marched forward as one continuous story, a counter story that's ongoing from the beginning of the history of the world until now. And so the Apostle John warned believers back in the first century that the spirit of Antichrist, quote, now is in the world already. The Apostle Paul wrote something similar to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, describing Satan as, quote, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, the original word that's translated at work literally means to energize. It's the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. So please understand, there's no break in either of the stories revealed in Scripture, the story of Jesus as the seed of the woman or the counter story of the seed of the serpent. Both have their beginning in Genesis and both continue throughout history, including to this very moment and on to the end of the age when Jesus finally prevails. Meanwhile, I'm going to take you back to Genesis to show you the origin of Satan's corruption of 666 as a symbol of those beliefs, values, and practices that he is even now energizing among the sons of disobedience in preparation for his seed, the seed of the serpent, the beast out of the sea. And I think you're going to find this interesting because it's going to pull back the curtain on an entire system of symbols and an entire system of beliefs and values and practices that Satan is using even now in support of his counter story. In the very first episode of the podcast, I said there are beliefs, values, and practices flowing through the world's political, economic, and religious systems like tiny streams of water that flow everywhere. And that these tiny streams began long ago as a part of a single, larger stream of corruption and counterfeit. But that God broke it apart, just as it was about to gain unstoppable momentum. And then I also said that someday, at the end of the age, God will allow this stream to reform into a mighty river of opposition against the seed of the woman, and against those who believe in him. This is exactly what's happening now a mighty river of corruption reforming on the world's stage. And once again, here's the thing. Even if 666 isn't plastered everywhere we look, even if we don't see it literally stamped into such organizations as the United Nations, World Economic Forum, or the Council on Inclusive Capitalism, when we note that their beliefs and values and practices, and also some of their other symbols, are tied to the corruption of the story told in Genesis chapters 1 through 12, a rebellion that includes the corruption of 666 as a number. When we see this, it's only reasonable to conclude that Satan intends to use 666 as the keystone symbol of his final rebellion, not as the symbol he leads with. 
In other words, just because the number 666 isn't on display everywhere yet, doesn't mean that the beliefs, values, and practices it symbolizes are also hidden from view. So my goal has been to connect the dots for you, to equip you to remain alert and not to fall unwittingly into collaboration with the spirit of Antichrist and with his counter story and the beliefs, values, and practices tied to 666. And by the way, don't think for a moment that all professing Christians are above being taken in by the grand deception that's coming. In Matthew 24, Jesus warned, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Some scholars think that the verbiage Jesus uses shows that he meant for believers especially to take this warning to heart that the false Christs and false prophets would target them. And so my goal is to equip you and others to endure in faith in the Lord Jesus and in confidence in his story and in his promise ultimately to restore all things. Meanwhile, as we return to Genesis and other Old Testament scriptures, I'm going to show some of the earliest ties between 666 and Satan's corruption in support of the counter story that he continues to energize. But first, I'm going to need to share something about the book of Genesis that too many people overlook. And it's going to open the door to some much-needed insight into a whole host of things that form the backdrop to John's mention of 666 in Revelation 13, 18, including things like gematria and the use of number in Scripture, including also the abuse of zodiacal constellations and corruptions of one of the most pivotal Old Testament stories of all, story of Noah and the flood. More next time on Seed of the Woman. <laughs>